Schwab Trading is now powered by Ameritrade to give you a new, elevated trading experience tailor-made for trader minds. Go deeper with Thinkorswim, the powerful, award-winning trading platforms now at Schwab. Unlock support from the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders who live and breathe trading like you do. And sharpen your skills with an expanding library of online education crafted just for traders. All designed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Well, one of the things that investors are looking for when they think about this pandemic and the coronavirus is what is going to be the role of biotech and big pharma in coming up with some treatments ultimately a vaccine. There's some decent news out of Gilead Sciences today. They may have on, they may be on to something to give us a sense of kind of where we are with uh, the healthcare system and the biotech companies and the pharma companies. We welcome our good friend Sam Fazelli. Sam Fazelli is a director of research for Bloomberg Intelligence, but more importantly, his day job. He is one of the top uh, healthcare analysts. Uh, he's based in London. Uh, so, Sam, thanks so much for joining us. Give us a little sense of what the news was out of Gilead how important is it? Um, hi, Paul. I hope you're all well. Uh, so, obviously, we've got two bits of news that have just come out. What Gilead itself put out was a try, test that they'd done to try and see whether five days of the, of the drug is as good as 10 days of, of the drug. Obviously, nobody wants to be going in for a daily infusion of a drug more than they have to. So, in that study that they reported, which was in very severe patients. Apparently, five days was just as good as 10 days. A lot of people are now trying to read in between the lines, look at the number of patients who recovered or didn't recover, and trying to understand whether the drug works from that trial. But of course, it wasn't controlled. And you know what, what our motto is, if it's not controlled, if it's not randomized, you really have to wait until you see that data. The other bit of news is this headline thing that we've seen that I think Max talked about earlier on the radio too, and that was that the National Institute for Allergy and Infectious Diseases has got this trial that is randomized and has apparently worked in 400 patients, and there's going to be some data on that. Now, that's a proper trial that's testing 10 days' worth of treatment with this drug remdesivir. So the problem is we just don't know what the data is. Sam, just taking a step back, I want to understand the importance of remdesivir being successful. In other words, how broadly can this be used if it's something that has to be administered in a hospital-like setting for only the most severe patients? Is it a game changer when it comes to the pandemic? What a great question. At the end of the day, I think we would all love to have a single game changer. I would be very happy to see this drug be that single game changer, but it's not going to help you and I sitting at home feel secure to go out. All we know is that any of these drugs that are being tested are drugs that are going to help us hopefully get better faster without suffering too much once we've got the disease, if we get the disease. 
So that's what they're all being tested for, the Roche drug, the Pfizer drugs, the Astra drug, the Regeneron and Sanofi drugs. To make us feel really good and game change everything, you still need that vaccine that gives you protection. So let's go there, Sam. I think, um, you know, a lot of the officials that we all hear about, whether they're government officials or healthcare officials, they seem to have kind of coalesced around this 12 to 18 month time frame for coming up with a vaccine. To me, you know, just having, you know, a, a little bit of experience, that seems very short. That seems like I'm more used to a number of years. Give us a sense of kind of how you think the timing of a vaccine might play out. Right. So I have to continue to be humble here in that I haven't been in a lab with a pipette in my hand for 20 years. But there, there, and, and you listen to a lot of scientists, a lot of top scientists from the Scripps Institute, from Oxford University, and they all are very optimistic given what they know about the virus. Not all viruses, thank God, are created equally. And uh, I heard one virologist say, you know, if this was um, on the scale of HIV being a genius, this is one that flunked high school. (laughs) Thank goodness. I'm glad to hear that. I love that comment. So (laughs) if that is true and our technologies all work, you know, with the with the uh, everything that's been thrown at developing a vaccine, with all these companies ranging from biotechs to the big shots in vaccine business, Pfizer, Glaxo, Sanofi, and Merck. Um, I hope that they are right, but you still have to get, everything has to work out for this to be, to be a success over that sort of time frame. Sam, there's also a question of the pipeline of production here and how quickly, once there is a vaccine, it can get mass produced and distributed to enough people to get some sort of herd immunity. What do we know on that front in terms of the cooperation internationally with, say, what's going on in Oxford where they're starting human trials? Yeah, so Oxford seems to be doing some interesting stuff here in that they're they're not really necessarily interested in being a vaccine company themselves. You know, I just saw a, a, an announcement today that the Serum Institute of India is going to produce their vaccine, and they're thinking of, well, if we're going to do that, we're going to keep it for India. I'm assuming that vaccine, if it's successful, will be available to whoever wants to take it on and manufacture it. So I wouldn't be surprised to see more countries or more companies from different countries coming up and saying, right, we'll have a go at that. But at the end of the day, with regards to uh, national politics versus um, vaccines and, and who manufactures what, I think that what we should have to do is just wait and see who can actually get that stuff done and then worry about how it's going to get spread out. If you think about the volumes that these companies are talking about, we'll have like 2 billion doses of vaccine next year. If you add Johnson & Johnson to Claxo to Sanofi to Pfizer, these are big numbers. So I don't think there'd be a, a shortage, uh, really. So, so, Sam, what are some of the next milestones we should be on the lookout for? Is it just company by company putting out kind of their tests, or is there anything more, I guess, maybe centralized uh, that we should be looking for? No, so from the treatment and vaccine side of things uh, that, that we're talking about, we have, in the next two to three months, there'll be lots of data points coming out, starting hopefully with the data, the actual data, safety and efficacy and safety. Again, safety. Remember, these are a lot of these vaccines are going to have to go into people who are not sick. So you can't give them the risk of an ailment. Um, 
for within the next two to three months, we'll hear a lot of uh, proof of concept, is the best phrase to call it, for vaccines. Uh, Pfizer very cleanly described some of the methods they're going to use to figure out whether they think something that they've got is um, protective, potentially. Um, and then you've got the drugs that will read out. Roche will have read out in early summer, June time, for their Actemra drug. You've got Remdesivir that will have some data maybe yeah. later today or certainly in the next few weeks. Then you've got AstraZeneca with Calquins. Then you've got <clears throat> Pfizer with its antivirals. So there's quite a lot of news that I think we'll be sitting here on a weekly basis, hopefully talking to each other about successes. Well, hopefully we will get a chance to speak with you again soon. Sam Fazelli, head of the EMEA Bloomberg Intelligence effort, as well as a senior pharmaceutical analyst. Really helpful insights to understand the progress being made looking for that silver bullet to allow life to return to normal. There's a huge discrepancy between the economic data that we're getting and the market action that we're seeing with stocks posting one of its biggest 25-day rallies in history. I want to bring this to you from Citigroup's Matt King. The gap between markets and data is the largest on record when limitless liquidity meets spiraling insolvency there's bound to be a long-term price. Joining us now to weigh in on what we can expect going forward, Lisa Shallot joins us now, fantastic name, Chief Investment Officer of Wealth Management for Morgan Stanley with $2.5 trillion of assets under management. Lisa, I, I wanted to start there because a lot of people say the only reason that markets are gaining is because the Fed is printing money. Do you agree? Well, certainly, you know, Fed liquidity has been absolutely key to these markets really over the last, quite frankly, 11 years um, since, you know, the financial crisis. Uh, and, and liquidity was operative in, in the surge that we saw in, in uh, January to the February 19th high. Uh, and it's probably, you know, playing a key part in, in building confidence and supporting uh, virtually every corner of, of the, the global fixed income market. Uh, and that obviously helps stocks. Uh, but really, from our perspective, what we've seen over the last four or five days is really a reaction um, to what markets always uh, positively react to, and that is upside surprise. And the upside surprise here uh, appears to be the pace at which uh, the U.S. is going to reopen. Um, most of the base case scenarios um, you know, that we had seen when this crisis first hit and we locked down in March, uh, were that the entire second quarter would be really decimated. Uh, I know here at Morgan Stanley, we were looking for, you know, second quarter GDP to annualize it down 38%, you know, just horrific numbers. Uh, but I think, um, you know, and, and not really have, have work, uh, have people coming back to work until the June, you know, and July timeframe. The fact that we're now having folks, even like Cuomo, talking about potential reopening, even in parts of New York State by May 15th, I do believe is an upside surprise to the market. And that's part of what you're seeing. And as a result, you're seeing sector rotation underneath the surface, meaning the stocks that are leading are not simply those safe, defensive, secular growth stocks, but we are seeing some recovery in some of those, you know, really damaged cyclical names uh, and small caps um, that perhaps, um, you know, we haven't seen much action in for quite a while. So Lisa, I know the uh, we're in the midst of earnings season here. Are there any 
valid takeaways here, or is this just a quarter and maybe even next quarter you just kind of you know flush down the toilet and really try to look towards the back end of this year and into 2021? So, uh, you know, in, in terms of what the, the market is looking through, I think the market is absolutely positively looking through the macroeconomic data. Uh, but these earnings data, I think, is being really scrubbed and scrutinized uh, by analysts, not so much for our people making or missing the numbers, uh, uh, you know, on, on the margin by pennies, right? But what people are really looking for is what, how resilient are, are the margins, are the profit margin structures. And so what might we expect and, and how are we going to pound our calculators? While it's great that sentiment is driving, you know, enthusiasm at the minute, uh, and we've had, you know, these upside surprises that maybe we will, in fact, reopen sooner than people thought, um, we're going to have to at some point reconcile, uh, you know, the, the level of the market, meaning, you know, 2,900 or, or even 3,000 on the S&P 500, with where earnings are going uh, and that price-earnings ratio. So it's, it's very fascinating because we've seen prices rebound from the March 23rd low by about 30%, but we've seen earnings estimates drop right from expectations of potential growth of, of 10% year-over-year back in January um, to profits that, that now look like they're going to drop by 20%. So that means huge multiple expansion. So I think analysts are scrutinizing um, the, the earnings this quarter quite closely and trying to, to nail down what is the S&P 500 profit outlook for this year. Is it 140? Is it 130? Is it 150? You know, what is it so that we can get a sense of, you know, what is the valuation in this market? What is that PE ratio? So, Lisa, just about a minute here. I'm wondering what you're advising clients to do to sort of hold a 60-40 type portfolio, get more defensive, get more aggressive. Um, so our uh, advice in this in this um, time has been very clear. Um, we want our clients out of indices like the S&P 500, which are passive, uh, which we think are too concentrated in, in the largest mega cap five tech stocks. Uh, we want them to be active stock pickers, and we want that stock picking to be concentrated in cyclical value in small cap sectors like financials, like industrials, like materials, um, and, and even uh, energy. Um, we, it's time for stock picking, and it, it's time to go where you're getting paid to take the, these risks uh, because the stocks are very cheap. Lisa Shallot, thank you so much for joining us. As always, we appreciate uh, your thoughts and commentary. Lisa Shallot, Chief Investment Officer, Wealth Management at Morgan Stanley, joining us on the phone. Uh, and, you know, interesting, uh, Lisa, talking about uh, analysts really are looking at these earnings and trying to get a sense of what this market can earn uh, in 2020 and 2021, because, you know, you could really make the argument that this market is expensive or cheap. So it's uh, investors are really trying to dig down and get a sense of whether uh, the earnings growth rate year over year? Is it flat? Yeah. Is it minus 10% kind of where the market is, uh, where the S&P earnings are right now? Or is it maybe even uh, something worse? And so trying to valuation uh, does matter, uh, certainly for this market. 
Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, unlocking the power of Thinkorswim, the award-winning trading platforms loaded with features that let you dive deeper into the market. Visualize your trades in a new light on Thinkorswim Desktop with robust charting and analysis tools, all while you uncover new opportunities with up-to-the-minute market news and insights. Thinkorswim is available on desktop, web, and mobile to meet you where you are. It's built by the trading obsessed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Well, this is the week that many of the tech bellwether names report uh, their quarterly numbers. We had some uh, better-than-expected results from Google last night, stock trading up about 8% today. So to get a sense of what's going on in the world of big tech, we welcome David Garrity, Chief Market Strategist for Laidlaw & Company, also a partner at BT Block, uh, joining us. Uh, David, thanks so much for joining us. Let's start with Google. Last night, some decent numbers, but Ruth Porat, the CFO, warned that March was an ugly quarter for added revenue and in April as well. So are you a little surprised by the performance of the stock today? Um, to the extent that the revenue numbers actually came in uh, better than what the street has been expecting, and the fact that there are good indications that non-search ad related segments were putting up solid growth. I mean, you're looking at YouTube up 34% in revenue terms year over year, Google's cloud operations up 52%. You know, this says that there's growth for Google, uh, for Alphabet, uh, despite the fact that, you know, in March, uh, search and display ad revenue dropped more than 10%. And obviously, April doesn't look to be much better, if at all. Okay. So things are really rough for Google on the ad side. They were able to compensate with their cloud spending and their YouTube traffic. I'm struggling to understand the lift that that has given, apparently, to Facebook shares, which report after the bell. Their shares up 5.9%. Where's their cloud that can offset the uh, decline in ad revenue? Yeah, no, no, no. Obviously, uh, Facebook is not involved in the cloud computing market um, to the extent that a Google or an Amazon or a Microsoft are. So, you know, to that extent, Facebook really is going to have to live or die um, in large part based upon its advertising revenues, um, which, you know, certainly they're involved in the same market as Alphabet, Google's operations. And if we look at sort of how pricing on ad inventory on Facebook properties, Facebook and Instagram uh, were developing over the course of um you know, the year to date, you've seen numbers break down appreciably. And we're looking at a situation here where April pricing levels are worse than March. Okay, so what does that mean? I mean, how long can these tech giants continue to gain in an environment where their main source of revenue is plummeting? No, I mean, I would argue it's, it's going to be that investors are going to have to be stock pickers uh, when it comes to looking at tech, and they're going to have to look at uh, companies that have diversified operations in a range of markets, not so much companies that are more pure plays in specific markets, such as Facebook is with respect to consumer um, advertising. You know, clearly we're in a situation here where you know, Facebook's probably going to try to cheer up investors by pointing to its recent investment in geo platforms, the $5.7 billion that they spent last week. Um, you know, this is going to build on Facebook's already big position in the world's second biggest internet market in India. But, you know, really, we think it's going to be hard for Facebook to get people's attention, investors' attention to move away from the fact that they're going to have weak revenue. Um, you know, it's expected that it's possible that Facebook may show their first quarterly year-on-year -year revenue decline. 
So, David, so as we think about Facebook and, and Google on in terms of advertising perspective, there's a school of thought out there that says, yeah, we know that digital media has been taking share from traditional media, whether it's broadcast or cable television. Uh, do you think that trend may accelerate here during this unusual time we're seeing here? No, I would certainly indicate that that's likely the case. And, and looking away from the tech sector, looking at uh, – you know, the global leading advertising company or advertising agency, you know, WPP Group, uh, I mean, they came out with their results and certainly, you know, they were showing the same uh, evaporation in terms of the end markets and their customers' inclination to spend uh, that certainly, you know, Google was picking up. So, you know, from that standpoint, we think that uh, those means that show the best ability to target uh, individual consumers uh, at scale, which certainly is what digital does, uh, are going to be prospering in this environment. So when we look at Google and when we look at Facebook after the close today, you know, we're seeing, you know, the best houses in a bad neighborhood. All right. So you see uh, the potential for Facebook to have a serious hit and Google to face worse times ahead. I want to shift gears a little bit to the ones that are doing really well. And I'm thinking of Amazon and Microsoft. We just look at the tech giants and I'm trying to understand how big they will be allowed to get. Uh, I'm wondering, as we're expecting a wave of consolidation in this era of uh, the haves and the have nots, do you expect a wave of, of sort of tie-ups and mergers and acquisitions that perhaps wouldn't have been allowed before this had all happened? I think to the extent that, um, you know, regulators in this environment may become more concerned about trying, and other authorities within the government may be more concerned about trying to maintain employment levels, uh, that, yeah, the pace of consolidation across a range of sectors is entirely possible. When we look at Amazon's share of retail spending in the U.S., you know, it, it's still at a level where it's so low that it wouldn't necessarily represent an issue from an antitrust perspective. Now, that said, uh, there have been investigations that have been opened um, in a number of different areas looking at Amazon's anti-competitive practices where you have third-party vendors who are selling products off the Amazon platform and yet Amazon is being accused of taking that consumer data and using it to develop, or their customer data, and using that to develop their own competing Amazon product. So it's interesting here. I mean, we're going to get uh, Amazon after the close uh, later this uh, week. Boy, this is a stock that's at or near its all-time high. It seems like uh, the silver lining of this pandemic is playing right into the hands of Amazon. What do you expect to hear from Amazon when they do report, David? I think Amazon, um, you know, certainly they're going to be talking about what they've been doing to expand their footprint, talking about how they've been hiring people within their warehouse operations. I mean, I would hope from a, a labor perspective that Amazon would be talking more significantly about what they're doing to provide, you know, substantial protection uh, for these workers' health. Although I would probably say that, you know, when we look at Amazon versus meatpacking plants, you know, Amazon is coming out as a stellar performer, uh, whereas obviously people in the meatpacking plants are getting seriously ill. But away from that, I think that, you know, Amazon has a chance maybe to talk about some of the areas where they want to expand, uh, potentially in terms of looking at healthcare, new markets. Um, so, you know, there's certainly an environment here where Amazon, as one of the leading technology companies, has the opportunity to accelerate its advance in this downturn into new markets and gain share in its existing businesses. 
David Garrity, thank you so much for being with us. David Garrity, Chief Market Strategist at Laidlaw & Company, also a partner at BT Block, uh, joining us to talk big tech in this pivotal week for big tech. And Paul, just following up on the antitrust uh, point, I, yeah. I think that this is something a growing number of people are talking about, the wave of consolidation. And there was a story on Bloomberg Law yesterday uh, speaking to antitrust attorneys who expect the government to relax some of the regulations in order to preserve the jobs, basically, if a bigger, better capitalized company wants to buy up a smaller one, they will be more amenable to that idea based on the idea that it will be better for the economy. I just wonder, especially with these tech behemoths, I wonder what that means for the landscape going forward in terms of how much more dominance the biggest players will have. I read something, I can't remember which analyst it was on Wall Street on the sell side, suggesting that the pandemic, one of the silver linings is that it takes the big tech uh, risk of regulation, puts it on the back burner because the government has a lot more things focusing on right now. Silver lining, perhaps, uh, if you are a long shareholder in those stocks. Starting to get some earnings coming out of Industrial America, GE, and Boeing. Uh, to help us chat through some of these, we turn to our good friend, Brooke Sutherland. She's a deals and industrials columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. She joins us on the phone from Kansas. So, Brooke, let's start with Boeing. You know, the concern here is first you had the 737 MAX. Now, obviously, you've got the pandemic, which has basically shut down uh, aviation. What is the overall impact going to be on Boeing? I know they're cutting their workforce, they're, they're, they're getting some loans, but this sounds like it could really be fundamentally challenging for uh, Boeing, not just in the near term, but maybe the intermediate and long term as well. No, look, I, I think that's absolutely the case. I mean, the CEO, Dave Calhoun, has said he doesn't expect to get back to, to 2019 levels of travel demand and, you know, for maybe as long as three years. And then you know, at that point, to see growth for new airplanes, we may still be waiting another couple of years. And I, I think you're seeing that reality in the production cuts that they announced today, which are pretty severe. And, of course, follow Airbus's decision to cut its own production by about a third. Um, you know, I, I don't think that they would be taking these kinds of job actions if not for, you know, the very stark situation that we're facing over, um, you know, a longer period. Um, you know, to Boeing's credit, with everything that happened with the 737 MAX, they kept their workforce largely intact. And so to see them taking this kind of step, I think, really speaks to the real crisis that we're facing in the aviation industry right now. Brooke, uh, I keep going back to this meme or this idea that chief executive officers don't want to let a good crisis go to waste, and they take moves that they may otherwise have wanted to make beforehand, but might have been less politically expedient and now can be sort of washed into the fold of the crisis. And I'm wondering if that's also one way to view the cuts that we're seeing at Boeing, as well as clients of Boeing saying, you know what, we're going to go with Airbus, especially after everything with the 737 MAX jet uh, debacle. Yeah, so a couple of things on that front. I mean, I think if you look at the industrial sector more broadly, I've actually been very surprised at the degree to which companies are using furloughs rather than layoffs. Um, and I think that speaks to, A, you know, these companies have caught a lot of costs, a lot of jobs over the past couple of years, including very recently in response to the U.S.-China trade war. Um, I think they don't want to be seen as... Um, you know, boogeymen, given the nature of the crisis that we're facing uh, and, and the pandemic that's happening. But they're also want to be prepared for when demand comes back to life. Um, and I do think some of those other sectors could see that happen a lot faster than in the aviation sector. Now, I don't think these cuts that Boeing is making um, would be 
you know, cuts that they would have made if, if not for the coronavirus crisis. I think it's very clearly a response to the demand that is falling off. But in terms of aircraft decisions, certainly the, you know, fact that the 737 MAX grounding has persisted for more than a year does open up more options to airlines who are reviewing their order books. Those are more easy to cancel at this point than an order for Airbus jets. So if you think about the longer term here and what the competitive dynamic looks like, it certainly does seem to me, at least, that when we come out the other side of this and we start talking about growth again, Airbus is in a much better position to capitalize on that than Boeing is right now. Hey, Brooke, let's spend a minute or so on GE. I know the story isn't so much about EPS or revenue. It's more about free cash flow. What's the key takeaway there? Yeah, not a great number. Uh, more than uh, $2 billion burned in free cash flow this quarter, and they say about $1 billion of that is because of the coronavirus. So where GE gets hit, hit, hit here excuse me, um, is they primarily make money through their aviation business. And the way that the aviation business does that is by servicing uh, and providing spare parts to airplanes. So with all of these airplanes grounded, GE no longer needs to do that. And what you're concerned about there over the long term is the pace of retirement. So we've seen a lot of airlines come out and say, we're mothballing these older, costlier jets. That changes the longer-term economics for GE's aftermarket business. And you have to wonder, you know, what does that cash flow look like when it does start coming back? Now, I will say GE is probably better positioned than some other companies here because its engines are primarily on younger, narrow-body planes. And those are the planes that are going to be most likely to stick around and most likely to come back relatively quickly. But Certainly, they have a lot of challenges here in the near term. And, you know, it, it does sort of put the brakes on the turnaround effort that was starting to show fruition for CEO Larry Culp. Brooke Sutherland, thank you so much for joining us. Enjoy Kansas. Brooke Sutherland deals an industrials columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, uh, talking about that in Boeing and GE. I thought it was so interesting. She's saying that there a lot of these industrial giants are choosing furloughs as they yeah. are expecting to bring everyone back on the other side or perhaps are recognizing the political pressure to be uh, perhaps I don't know, a little bit more amenable to keeping jobs given yeah, exactly. the state of the current economy. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Brought to you by Sherm, a better workplace, a better world.